Section 2 of Walking by Henry David Thoreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Allison Hester in Athens, Georgia. Section 2. At present, in this vicinity, the best part of the land is not private property. The landscape is not owned, and the walker enjoys comparative freedom. But possibly the day will come when it will be partitioned off into so-called pleasure grounds, in which a few will take a narrow and exclusive pleasure only. When fences shall be multiplied, and man-traps and other engines invented to confine men to the public road, and walking over the surface of God's earth shall be construed to mean trespassing on some gentleman's grounds. To enjoy a thing exclusively is commonly to exclude yourself from the true enjoyment of it. Let us improve our opportunities, then, before the evil days come. What is it that makes it so hard sometimes to determine whither we will walk? I believe that there is a subtle magnetism in nature, which, if we unconsciously yield to it, will direct us aright. It is not indifferent to us which way we walk. There is a right way, but we are very liable from heedlessness and stupidity to take the wrong one. We would fain take that walk, never yet taken by us through this actual world, which is perfectly symbolical of the path which we love to travel in the interior and ideal world. And sometimes, no doubt, we find it difficult to choose our direction, because it does not yet exist distinctly in our idea. When I go out of the house for a walk, uncertain as yet whither I will bend my steps and submit myself to instinct to decide for me, I find, strange and whimsical as it may seem, that I finally and inevitably settle southwest towards some particular wood or meadow or deserted pasture or hill in that direction. My needle is slow to settle, varies a few degrees, and does not always point due southwest, it is true. And it has good authority for this variation, but it always settles between west and south-southwest. The future lies that way to me, and the earth seems more unexhausted and richer on that side. The outline which would bound my walks would be not a circle, but a parabola, or rather like one of those cometary orbits which have been thought to be non-returning curves, in this case, opening westward, in which my house occupies the place of the sun. I turn round and round, irresolute sometimes, for a quarter of an hour, until I decide, for a thousandth time, that I will walk into the southwest or west. Eastward I go only by force, but westward I go free. Thither no business leads me. It is hard for me to believe that I shall find fair landscapes or sufficient wildness and freedom behind the eastern horizon. I am not excited by the prospect of a walk thither, but I believe that the forest which I see in the western horizon stretches uninterruptedly toward the setting sun, and there are no towns nor cities in it of enough consequence to disturb me, let me live where I will. On this side is the city, on that the wilderness, 
And ever I am leaving the city more and more, and withdrawing into the wilderness. I should not lay so much stress on this fact if I did not believe that something like this is the prevailing tendency of my countrymen. I must walk toward Oregon and not toward Europe. And that way the nation is moving. And I may say that mankind progress from east to west. Within a few years, we have witnessed the phenomenon of a southeastward migration and the settlement of Australia. But this affects us as a retrograde movement, and judging from the moral and physical character of the first generation of Australians has not yet proved to be a successful experiment. The Eastern Tartars think that there is nothing west beyond Tibet. The world ends there, they say. Beyond there is nothing but a shoreless sea. It is unmitigated east where they live. We go eastward to realize history and study the works of art and literature, retracing the steps of the race. We go westward as into the future with a spirit of enterprise and adventure. The Atlantic is a Lethian stream and our passage over which we have had an opportunity to forget the old world and its institutions. If we do not succeed this time, there is perhaps one more chance for the race left before it arrives on the banks of the Styx, and that is in the Lethe of the Pacific, which is three times as wide. I know not how significant it is or how far it is in an evidence of singularity that an individual should thus consent in his pettiest walk with the general movement of the race, but I know that something akin to the migratory instinct in birds and quadrupeds, which in some instances is known to have affected the squirrel tribe, impelling them to a general and a mysterious movement in which they were seen say some, crossing the broadest rivers, each on its particular chip, with its tail raised for a sail and bridging narrower streams with their dead. That something like the furor which affects the domestic cattle in the spring, and which is referred to a worm in their tails, affects both nations and individuals, either perennially or from time to time. Not a flock of wild geese cackles over our town. But it, to some extent, unsettles the value of real estate here. And if I were a broker, I should probably take that disturbance into account. Then Longin folk to gone on pilgrimages, and Palmers for to Sigan strange strands. Every sunset which I witness inspires me with the desire to go to a west as distant and as fair as that into which the sun goes down. He appears to migrate westward daily and tempt us to follow him. He is the great western pioneer whom the nations follow. We dream all night of those mountain ridges in the horizon, though they may be of vapor only, which were last gilded by his rays. The island of Atlantis and the islands and gardens of the Hesperides, a sort of terrestrial paradise, appear to have been the great west of the ancients, enveloped in mystery and poetry. Who has not seen in imagination, when looking into the sunset sky, the gardens of Hesperides 
and the foundation of all those fables. Columbus felt the westward tendency more strongly than any before. He obeyed it and found a new world for Castile and Leon. The herd of men in those days scented fresh pastures from afar. And now the sun had stretched out all the hills and now was dropped into the western bay. At last he rose and twitched his mantle blue. Tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. Where on the globe can there be found an area of equal extent with that occupied by the bulk of our states, so fertile and so rich and varied in its productions, and at the same time so habitable by the European as is this? Michaud, who knew but part of them, says that the species of large trees are much more numerous in North America than in Europe. In the United States, there are more than 140 species that exceed 30 feet in height. In France, there are but 30 that attain this size. Later, botanists more than confirm his observations. Humboldt came to America to realize his youthful dreams of a tropical vegetation, and he beheld it in its greatest perfection in the primitive forests of the Amazon, the most gigantic wilderness on the earth which he has so eloquently described. Guillot, himself a European, goes further, further than I am ready to follow him, yet not when he says, As the plant is made for the animal, as the vegetable world is made for the animal world, America is made for the man of the old world. The man of the old world sets out upon his way, leaving the highlands of Asia, he descends from station to station towards Europe. Each of his steps is marked by new civilization superior to the preceding, by a greater power of development. Arrived at the Atlantic, he pauses on the shore of this unknown ocean, the bounds of which he knows not, and turns upon his footprints for an instant. When he has exhausted the rich soil of Europe and reinvigorated himself, then recommences his adventurous career westward as in the earliest ages. So far, Guillaume. From this western impulse coming in contact with the barrier of the Atlantic sprang the commerce and enterprise of modern times. The younger Michaud in his travels west of the Alleghenies in 1802 says that the common inquiry in the newly settled west was, From what part of the world have you come? as if these vast and fertile regions would naturally be the place of meeting and common country of all inhabitants of the globe. To use an obsolete Latin word, I might say, ex oriente lux, ex occidente frux. From the east light, from the west fruit. Sir Francis Head, an English traveler with a governor-general of Canada, tells us that in both the northern and southern hemispheres of the New World, nature has not only outlined her works on a larger scale, but has painted the whole picture with brighter and more costly colors than she used in delineating and beautifying the Old World. The heavens of America appear infinitely higher, the sky is bluer, the air is fresher, 
the cold is intenser, the moon looks larger, the stars are brighter, the thunder is louder, the lightning is vivider, the wind is stronger, the rain is heavier, the mountains are higher, the rivers are longer, the forests bigger, the plains broader. This statement will do at least to set against Buffon's account of this part of the world and its productions. Linnaeus said long ago, Necio que facies lata glabra plantis americanis. I know not what there is of joyous and smooth in the aspect of American plants. And I think that in this country there are no, or at most very few, African bestiae, African beasts, as the Romans called them, and that in this respect also it is peculiarly fitted for the habitation of man. We are told that within three miles of the center of the East Indian city of Singapore, some of the inhabitants are annually carried off by tigers, but the traveler can lie down in the woods at night almost anywhere in North America without fear of wild beasts. There are encouraging testimonies. If the moon looks larger here than in Europe, probably the sun looks larger also. If the heavens of America appear infinitely higher and the stars brighter, I trust that these facts are symbolical of the height to which the philosophy and poetry and religion of her inhabitants may one day soar. At length, perchance, the immaterial heaven will appear as much higher to the American mind and the intimations that star it is as much brighter. For I believe that the climate does thus react on man, as there is something in the mountain air that feeds the spirit and inspires. Will not man grow to greater perfection intellectually as well as physically under these influences? Or is it unimportant how many foggy days there are in his life? I trust that we shall be more imaginative, that our thoughts will be clearer, fresher, and more ethereal as our sky, our understanding more comprehensive and broader like our planes, our intellect generally on a grander scale like our thunder and lightning, our rivers and mountains and forests. And our hearts shall even correspond in breadth and depth and grandeur to our inland seas. Perchance there will appear to the traveler something, he knows not what, of lata and glabra, of joyous and serene in our very faces. Else, to what end does the world go on, and why was America discovered? To Americans, I hardly need to say, Westward of the star of empire takes its way. As a true patriot, I should be ashamed to think that Adam in paradise was more favorably situated on the whole than the backwoodsman in this country. Our sympathies in Massachusetts are not confined to New England. Though we may be estranged from the South, we sympathize with the West. There is the home of the younger sons, as among the Scandinavians, they took to the sea for their inheritance. It is too late to be studying Hebrew. It is more important to understand even the slang of today. Some months ago, I went to see a panorama of the Rhine. It was like a dream of the Middle Ages. I floated down its historic stream in something more than imagination, 
under bridges built by the Romans and repaired by later heroes, past cities and castles whose very names were music to my ears, and each of which was the subject of a legend. There were Aaron Breitstein and Roland Seck and Koblenz, which I knew only in history. They were ruins that interested me chiefly. There seemed to come up from its waters and its vine-clad hills and valleys a hushed music as of crusaders departing for the Holy Land. I floated along the spell of enchantment, as if I had been transported to a heroic age and breathed an atmosphere of chivalry. Soon after, I went to see a panorama of the Mississippi, and as I worked my way up the river in the light of today and saw the steamboats wooding up, counted the rising cities, gazed on the fresh ruins of Novu, beheld the Indians moving west across the stream, and as before, I had looked up the Moselle, now looked up the Ohio and the Missouri, and heard the legends of Dubuque and Winona's Cliff, still thinking more of the future than of the past or present. I saw that this was a Rhine stream of a different kind, that the foundations of castles were yet to be laid, and the famous bridges were yet to be thrown over the river, and I felt that this was the heroic age itself, though we know it not, for the hero is commonly the simplest and obscurest of men. The West of which I speak is but another name for the wild, and what I have been preparing to say is that in wildness is the preservation of the world. Every tree sends its fibers forth in search of the wild. The cities import it at any price. Men plow and sail for it. From the forest and wilderness come the tonics and barks which brace mankind. Our ancestors were savages. The story of Romulus and Remus being suckled by a wolf is not a meaningless fable. The founders of every state which has ridden to eminence have drawn their nourishment and vigor from a similar wild source. It was because the children of the empire were not suckled by the wolf that they were conquered and displaced by the children of the northern forests who were. I believe in the forest and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows. We require an infusion of hemlock spruce or arbor vitae in our tea. There is a difference between the eating and drinking for strength and for mere gluttony. The Hottentots eagerly devour the marrow of the kudu and other antelopes raw, as a matter of course. Some of our northern Indians eat raw the marrow of the Arctic reindeer, as well as various other parts, including the summits of the antlers, as long as they are soft. And herein, perchance, they have stolen a march on the cooks of Paris. They get what usually goes to feed the fire. This is probably better than stall-fed beef and slaughterhouse pork to make a man of. Give me a wildness whose glance no civilization can endure, as if we lived on the marrow of kudus devoured raw. There are some intervals which border the strain of the wood thrush to which I would migrate. Wild lands where no settler has squatted, to which, methinks, I am already acclimated. The African hunter coming tells us that the skin of the eland, 
as well as that of most other antelopes just killed, emits the most delicious perfume of trees and grass. I would have every man so much like a wild antelope, so much a part and parcel of nature, that his very person should thus sweetly advertise our senses of his presence and remind us of those parts of nature which he most haunts. I feel no disposition to be satirical when the trapper's coat emits the odor of muskwash even. It is a sweeter scent to me than that which commonly exhales from the merchant's or the scholar's garments. When I go into their wardrobe and handle their vestments, I am reminded of no grassy plains and flowery meads which they have frequented, but of dusty merchants' exchanges and libraries, rather. A tanned skin is something more than respectable, and perhaps olive is a fitter color than white for a man. A denizen of the woods. The pale white man. I do not wonder that the African pitied him. Darwin, the naturalist, says, A white man bathing by the side of a Tahitian was like a plant bleached by the gardener's art, compared with a fine, dark green one growing vigorously in the open fields. Ben Johnson exclaims, How near to good is what is fair. So, I would say, How near to good is what is wild. Life consists with wildness. The most alive is the wildest. Not yet subdued to man, its presence refreshes him. One who pressed forward incessantly and never rested from his labors, who grew fast and made infinite demands on life, would always find himself in a new country or wilderness and surrounded by the raw material of life. He would be climbing over the prostrate stems of primitive forest trees. Hope and the future for me are not in lawns and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the impervious and quaking swamps. When, formerly, I have analyzed my partiality for some farm which I had contemplated purchasing, I have frequently found that I was attracted solely by a few square rods of impermeable and unfathomable bog, a natural sink in one corner of it. That was the jewel which dazzled me. I derive more of my sustenance from the swamps which surround my native town than from the cultivated gardens in the village. There are no richer parterres to my eyes than the dense beds of dwarf andromeda, Cassandra colluculata, which cover these tender places on the earth's surface. Botany cannot go farther than tell me the names of the shrubs which grow there, the high blueberry, panicled andromeda, lambkill, azalea, and radora, all standing in the quaking sphagnum. I often think that I should like to have my house front on this mass of dull red bushes, emitting other flower pots and borders, transplanted spruce and trim box, even graveled walks, to have this fertile spot under my windows, not a few imported barrelfuls of soil, only to cover the sand which was thrown out in digging the cellar. Why not put my house, my parlor, behind this plot, instead of behind that meager assemblage of curiosities? that poor apology for a nature and art, which I call my front yard. It is an effort to clear up and make a decent appearance 
when the carpenter and mason have departed, though done as much for the passerby as the dweller within. The most tasteful front yard fence was never an agreeable object of study to me. The most elaborate ornaments, acorn tops, or whatnot, soon wearied and disgusted me. Bring your sills up to the very edge of the swamp. Then, though it may not be the best place for a dry cellar, so that there be no access on that side to citizens. Front yards are not made to walk in, but at most through, and you could go in the back way. Yes, though you may think me perverse, if it were proposed to me to dwell in the neighborhood of the most beautiful garden that ever human art contrived, or else of a dismal swamp, I should certainly decide for the swamp. How vain, then, have been all your labors, citizens, for me. My spirits infallibly rise in proportion to the outward dreariness. Give me the ocean, the desert, or the wilderness. In the desert, pure air and solitude compensate for want of moisture and fertility. The traveler Burton says of it, Your morale improves. You become frank and cordial, hospitable and single-minded. In the desert, spirituous liquors excite only disgust. There is a keen enjoyment in a mere animal existence. They who have been traveling long on the steppes of Tartary say, On recentering cultivated lands, the agitation, perplexity, and turmoil of civilization oppressed and suffocated us. The air seemed to fail us, and we felt every moment as if about to die of asphyxia. When I would recreate myself, I seek the darkest wood, the thickest and most interminable, and, to the citizen, most dismal swamp. I enter a swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow of nature. The wild wood covers the virgin mold. And the same soil is good for men and trees. A man's health requires as many acres of meadow to his prospect as his farm does loads of muck. There are strong meats on which he feeds. A town is saved, not more by the righteous men in it than by the woods and swamps that surround it. A township where one primitive forest waves above while another primitive forest rots below, such a town is fitted to raise not only corn and potatoes, but poets and philosophers for the coming ages. In such a soil grew Homer and Confucius and the rest, and out of such a wilderness comes the reformer eating locusts and wild honey. To preserve wild animals implies generally the creation of a forest, for them to dwell in or resort to. So it is with man. A hundred years ago, they sold bark in our streets, peeled from our own woods. In the very aspect of those primitive and rugged trees, there was, methinks, a tanning principle, which hardened and consolidated the fibers of men's thoughts. Ah, already I shudder for these comparatively degenerate days of my native village, when you cannot collect a load of bark of good thickness, and we no longer produce tar and turpentine. The civilized nations, Greece, Rome, England, have been sustained by the primitive forest which anciently rotted where they stand. They survive as long as the soil is not exhausted. Alas for human culture! 
Little is to be expected of a nation when the vegetable mold is exhausted and it is compelled to make manure of the bones of its fathers. There, the poet sustains himself merely by his own superfluous fat, and the philosopher comes down on his marrow bones. It is said to be the task of the American to work the virgin soil, and that agriculture here already assumes proportions unknown everywhere else. I think that the farmer displaces the Indian, even because he redeems the meadow, and so makes himself stronger and in some respects more natural. I was surveying for a man the other day a single straight line 132 rods long through a swamp at whose entrance might have been written the words which Dante read over the entrance to the infernal regions, leave all hope ye that enter. That is, of ever getting out again. Where at one time I saw my employer actually up to his neck and swimming for his life in his property, though it was still winter. He had another similar swamp, which I could not survey at all, because it was completely underwater. And nevertheless, with regard to a third swamp, which I did survey from a distance, he remarked to me, true to his instincts, that he would not part with it for any consideration on account of the mud which it contained. And that man intends to put a girdling ditch round the hole in the course of 40 months, and so redeem it by the magic of his spade. I refer to him only as the type of a class. End of section two.